Hey everybody, this is Chris Irwin, and welcome to the Rare Sense Podcast. Today I'm speaking with Stefan France. Stefan is a longtime friend who I've known for about 25 years. He spent 12 years in the Navy as a corpsman, and now works as a board-certified psychiatric nurse practitioner. In our conversation, we discuss the spectrum of mental health, active listening and nonverbal cues, the expectation effect, fundamental and limiting beliefs, cognitive behavioral therapy, reframing feelings, stoicism, anxiety and panic attacks, catastrophizing, mindful morning routines, focusing on the present, depression and medication, the responsibility for recovery, the fear of change, recovery setbacks, creating purpose, and other topics. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. We did, however, have some technical issues, so much so that Stefan had to move locations about 20 minutes into the podcast. You shouldn't notice any of that if you're just listening to it, but if you're watching the video on YouTube, you will see some jump cuts. Stefan's video actually freezes for a period of time, and then you'll notice that his background changes. So my apologies for those issues, but like I said, if you're listening, you hopefully won't notice anything, and if you're watching, please just forgive me for the technical issues that we had there. Now, without further ado... Here's Stefan France. All right, Stefan, good to see you, man. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. And you look great, by the way. It's been a very long. I don't even know the last time we saw one another, but it's been a while. But you look absolutely no different than the last time I saw you, as far as I remember. <laughs> well, thank you very much. You, you look real good, too, brother. So why don't I start off just by giving a little background of how you and I know each other, and then I'll have you introduce yourself so that everyone's got a sense of uh, what you do and, and how I think it's relevant to the conversation, certainly with mental health. Um, you and I met... Gosh, 20 years ago, probably something like that. I don't know. I don't actually remember the specific date or anything like that, but we were, (laughs) we were all in the Navy and we had, we were members of a band called Flyer Lounge in San Diego as very, in our young 20 somethings. Um, And it was like me and a whole bunch of guys, classmates of mine, company mates from the Naval Academy and then you, who was a, a, I think you were a corpsman at the time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And none of us, none of us worked together, obviously. And we, I don't even know how we got linked up in that. Obviously, I knew all those guys, Jeff and Sean and from, uh, from the Academy, but I don't remember how we got linked up with you. And I should say that I was, I call myself loosely a member of the band. I was like the, the fifth Beatle or whatever, right? I was, you guys were like the real band and I was sort of the guy who could kind of play guitar and was allowed to play a song here and there, but I was not like a starting member of the, of the group by any stretch of the imagination, but you were the drummer. How did that all happen? I don't remember how we got linked up. Yeah. I think um, I was playing with another band uh, called urban evergreen. Oh yeah. Right. uh, Right. The bass player in that band, Torno Sullivan, really great guy. I think he knew or was friends with, um, Corey Christensen, yep, who was one one of your guys' friends, was like a third generation is a third generation jet fighter pilot, right? Yep, right. Yep. Um, and and uh, 
they, you guys had told, uh, got the word to me that you were looking for a drummer and, uh, I, I wanted to get into another band. And I think that's, uh, I think that's how that happened. Okay. Right. Right. I forgot about Ur urban evergreen. Those guys were great. I still have that CD somewhere too, or at least I have the digital recordings like in my iTunes, uh, Sarah's hundred angels and, there's another song in there too that's really cool. I don't remember the name of it. Those guys were super talented, man. They um, they wrote some great songs, and that's the uh, probably uh, that's the I toured with that band. They uh, we got a sponsorship by Jim Beam. They put us on the road, and that was really incredible. One of my boxes to check on my life goals to tour in a in a rock band. That was pretty cool. And do you still play at this point? Uh, I'm talking to a group of guys right now and we're like throwing songs at each other, you know, texting. I haven't played, gosh, um, probably since I started nursing school. So it's, it's, uh, it's been a long time, you know, it's probably been more than maybe 15 years since, uh, I played with a, with a band. So hopefully I'll have some time here in the future to jam with these new guys. So we'll see what happens. I still have, I have a kit in storage. I need to go get it, <laughs> set it up. Yeah, for we'll sure. See. Let's get into that later. I want to introduce you for the relevance of being on the podcast, which is not that, but I think the musical component of it, that's something I'm, I very much espouse in terms of mind fitness is playing an instrument, learning a skill like that, I think is extremely beneficial for numerous reasons. So maybe we can get into that later, but let's, let's start truly with why you're here on the podcast, which is you used to be, as for, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, you were corpsman, military corpsman. So you're a veteran, which I think is obviously really relevant, and I think that's important. And then you were a, a nurse. What I would, I don't know what the right term is, but in like what I think of as a medical nurse, sort of a, no, a normal nurse. If there's a, you can correct me on the actual terminology there. But then you flipped over, or whatever you want to call it, to sort of a mental health practitioner of sorts. And I don't, you can educate me on the, the alphabet soup that's after your name, right? The various initialisms that are there. But so similar to Jeff Wiedenhofer, Wiedenhofer who I introduced or uh, interviewed on the first podcast, you've kind of gone that route, which is really cool. And it's interesting to me how many guys I know, or it seems that I know, that are doing this, that are veterans that are now in the mental health space, helping other veterans, helping other people, with mental health, which is really cool. So just talk about that, like where you were at professionally, what you do, make sure I got the title correct or that you can correct me on what your actual title and job is. Yeah. Uh, so just, just like you said, I started in the military as a corpsman and I, I got out uh, after 12 years and I challenged the um, LPN license, nursing license, which, which stands for low paid nurse, if anybody doesn't know. And um, from, from that, I, I started working at a a crisis house in San Diego, a nonprofit. And uh, I was real lucky to work with, uh, they had psychiatrists that they would come come there and see patients from UCSD, um, a clinic called the Gifford Clinic. And these were a group of teaching psychiatrists. And I started uh, being able to have access to them and started having conversations with them about psych and taking care of these all these different patients. And I just got so uh, interested and taking care of, of psychiatric patients and substance use disorder uh, patients with, with that with that those issues, um, and did that as a nurse for 
the next 19 years uh, working in various locked units, outpatient, inpatient. Uh, I got to work with the psychiatric emergency response team in San Diego, which is a, a division of the police department. Um, where they would go and, and see if people needed help on the streets. They would come and bring, bring them to our crisis house. We get to evaluate them. And so uh, after that, I um, worked with this incredible uh, psychiatrist in uh, Boise, Idaho, and he agreed to uh, train me after I got into grad school. And uh, I got to do my clinical rotation with him and another psychiatrist to do the uh, uh, adolescent and young adult uh, rotation and it was just an incredible experience. Uh, so now I'm, I'm a, uh, yeah, the, there's a lot of letters. I'm a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner board certified. Um, okay. <laughs> Got it. Yeah. Which basically what that is, is if, if you look at a, a therapist and a psychiatrist, so a therapist like Jeff Wiedenhofer focuses on, uh, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, motivational interviewing, um, you know, uh, making small changes. And then I'll, and a psychiatrist will focus on medication management, all the psychotropic medications and those things. So a nurse practitioner kind of does a little bit of both of those things. I, I do what we call brief psychotherapy with patients. I do use CBT, motivational interviewing, Socratic questioning, but I also have the ability and knowledge about psychotropic medications. And I can prescribe those meds and I can diagnose just like a psychiatrist can. Um, okay. And that's, uh, yeah, all of the, all of those medications. So, well, let me start with what about this field really interested you? Why did you make the switch from, again, sort of a medical nurse to what you do now, right? Like going from sort of the physical side of being a nurse to it, to the mental side of helping people or whatever you want to call it, the physical side of medical, the medical field to the mental side. It, Cause it seems like, it was a very strong pull for you where from everything you just described, it was something that you felt very passionate about and drawn to. What was, what was it about it that made you do that? So uh, my first, my first civilian job as a nurse was, was in the emergency department um, in San Diego. And, and what, what I started to see and notice was, is that the majority of those patients had some type of uh, psychological issue or mental health disorder, uh, seeing it more and more and more. And then I got to that crisis house and was working there and uh, they had therapists that were there getting their hours uh, as training. And every day at noon, we would sit in a group in a circle and we would talk about each patient, each case, what was going on. And I was the, the voice and the representative of the psychiatrist. And so I talk about the medications they were on and what they were doing. But what I started to notice when we crack open the DSM is that we all have these aspects of mental health disorders and um, they affect all of us. The, the difference is, is that when it goes to a period of a person's having some dysregulation or issues, that's when treatment is necessary. But that just kind of blew me away, it blew my mind that um, I would see some of those disorders, those issues in myself, in my family, in my friends, but just not to a point of dysregulation. And I just thought that was profoundly interesting. Um, and then the, the more, when I kind of opened my eyes to that and I started to look for it, I would, I would see it everywhere. 
you know how it is when you you buy a new car that you haven't had before, and then all of a sudden you start seeing that car everywhere you drive around. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, yep. So it's kind of like that, right? So when you're aware of something, you start to see it, and the more uh, and more I realize is that we all have these mental health uh, challenges and issues. Uh, most of us are, they're not to a point where they're causing dysregulation, but they're definitely present in every single one of us. So no one is immune. I want to zero in on something you said there, which I think is it's exactly one of the points that I make, which is mental health is not, or what I call mind fitness, is not a binary thing. And I think too often we think of it that way. We think of there's people over here, and maybe I'm one of them in certain circumstances, that have mental health problems, quote unquote problems. And then there's everyone else over here that don't. And there's no gap. There's no space in between. There's no daylight. And the argument I keep making is, no, it's a spectrum. We're all sprinkled along this spectrum at some point, And we move around depending on the day, depending on the week. And we can do things to actively proactively move ourselves to the right to make us more fit mentally, or we can do other things or not do other things that move us to the left and make us less fit. So I love what you're saying there of, hey, I notice the the potential for me to have these conditions that I'm talking about in some measure, right? So again, it's not this yes, no thing, but I might be prone to a little bit of this, or I might notice that I'm expressing some measure of this condition in one form or another. I think that's a a great insight. And it's fantastic to hear it from you, somebody who's got expertise and clinical experience to kind of make that um, association, right? To have that realization of that's kind of what's going on with, with, I would say everybody, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, and to, to think about those things, um, is, is, um, it's a rabbit hole, you know, it's, it's an extra step. Um, and it's, it's a lot of work and it's so much easier just to not think about those things. And I think a lot of, uh, a lot of practitioners, um, from psychiatrists to therapists, like that's the very first thing that happens is that you, you think about those things. Uh, How's this affecting me? How's this affecting my partner, my family? You, you go through all those things first and then you kind of work your way back. And that's the really only way that I think you can really see and care for patients without, you know, without any judgment, without putting anything on that is you've got to, you've got to put yourself through that first. Um, and then you're in a position where you understand, you know, we're all on that spectrum, just like you said. Uh, it's just a point of is where that are you on that something they teach spectrum? though? Because it sounds to me, the way you said that and described your sort of epiphany, for lack of a better word, almost sounded like that's not something they teach where, again, it's more of a removed situation of, hey, I'm practitioner, I'm person that's going to help you with your mental health, you're a patient, you're the person who has a problem. Is that the case? Or is it something when you go through training, when you go through school, they say exactly what you're saying, which is, no, 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 you're you're subject to this stuff as well. Like you're probably quote unquote, suffering from some aspect of it. And you need to recognize that in yourself. Is that the case? Um, I think they, they touch on that, but I, I don't really think they talk about it enough. You know, I, I was lucky um, with the psychiatrist that I trained under. We, we talked about that stuff all the time, you know, um, and he was uh, very, very forthcoming. 
and uh, kind of showed me by example that, you know, being vulnerable and saying these things out loud is actually a strength, not a weakness, because it's like when you drag something into the light, you can see it, you know, and when you see it, you can deal with it. And I think there's a lot of practitioners out there that um, I think they're kind of fooling themselves to think there is like an us and them, you know, and I'm, I'm here to treat you and I don't have any problems or issues. Of course, you would never discuss that with the patient, but but to not go there on your own and do that work, um, I think you're, you're leaving a lot out of, of that learning process, right? And I think you may be, um, yeah. you know, maybe thwarting yourself a little bit as far as a, a, a real, pr- what a practitioner is really supposed to do. Um, you know, knowing that you've had some depression or anxiety or, or substance use disorder in the past, it really, it, 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 I think it's been helpful. Uh, to, to bring that in, to bring it all in, you know, and you're really just another human that's trying to help someone else at the end of the day. Right. So I think that's important to um, say out loud sometimes. Um, and and I, talk, I have that conversation with a lot of other practitioners. Um, it's, it's okay. If you're having a problem, you're having a tough time, you know, we're all there at certain times and um, you know, yep with all this, the stigma that we have in this profession and, and uh, with, with treatment and, and seeking treatment and saying, Hey, I have a problem. I need help. You know, it's, it's, you know, talking about it can help uh, dissipate that stigma a lot, a lot of the time. Yeah. I mean, to me, here's what I'll say as a sufferer, I am not a practitioner. I am not a psychiatrist or a doctor. I don't have any of those credentials and I don't pretend to, but one of the things I often talk about is the fact that for my own recovery, so to speak, the voices of the sufferers in a lot of ways meant more to me than the voices of the practitioners. When I was trying to sort out what was going on with me and the solutions, I got a lot more solace and inspiration and hope out of somebody who was like, hey, I was in your shoes and here's what I did and I got better than the person who's saying, here's all the peer reviewed studies and books that I've read and the people that I've talked to. And that's not to say that's not to denigrate or disparage the fields of research here or the fields of medical practitioners or psychiatry or any of that. But I think the more anyone can get on your level, the more likely you you are to get to them. So to me, if I went into a psychiatrist's office or a, a therapist's office, and they they the first thing they told me was, here's all the things I dealt with. I've been through what you've been through, or I deal with what you're dealing with. To me, that would break down a lot of walls right right off the bat. That that would make me feel like, okay, I'm talking to somebody who truly knows what I'm experiencing. So I, I think that's a great approach. And I don't know if you take that approach with the people you work with and help. But to me, that means a lot. I, I think it really depends on the patient. You know, um, it, it's, it's um, taught that it's counterintuitive to say, hey, I've, I've been through what, you, what, you're, you're, what you're going through right now. Um, I think there's a lot of um, appeal to authority, which um, mm-hmm. we know is a, is, a, is a fallacy, right? Fallacy argument. But, but I think when people are feeling lost, they, they really need you know, they're counting on you to help them. You know, they're counting on you to, to 
offer some, you know, um, piece of advice or medication or treatment, or sometimes they just want you to listen. Um, you know, I, I have a tendency to talk way too much. And one of my biggest challenges well, is becoming a practitioner. That's why you're on this <laughs> podcast, man. You can talk as yeah. much as you want. We can... <laughs> Great. What, one of my biggest challenges was, was really learning how to actively listen to someone, you know, just to shut, shut me off, not about me, and really listen to the patient. And um, I found that w- when I do that, you know, oftentimes I'll, the patient's telling me what, 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 they, what they really need in so many terms, in so many ways. They're, they're giving it to you, you know, and if you're really listening and you're actively listening um, and, and you can um, develop a therapeutic relationship with that patient. Or in other words, you can, you can, there's some trust there. You know, I, I think you're authentic, Stefan, and I, I think you're really trying to help me, right? Then, um, then you're off and running with a, with really helping that, that patient. So, yeah, I think, um, there's a lot to be said for, I'm just going to listen and I, I just want to hear how you're doing. You know, these, these open-ended questions are, are fantastic because it just gives, gives the, the person permission to just, you know, go ahead, look, tell me what's going on, you know, and then yeah. afterwards, you know, then come the more specific questions that I, I have to get answered, like the safety questions and things like that, things that I need to know. So um, there's a lot to be said for, for actively listening and, and you, you communicate that in nonverbal ways. And how do we, so let me ask you this then, because I think that's a skill that we probably, a lot of people have forgotten how to, how to do, <laughs> I think. We, I think we're all bad at it to some extent. I mean, I'm sure there are people out there that are just naturally good, empathetic listeners. But for the most part, we all get so wrapped up in our own head and we want to talk so much. And so much of what we do these days is look at me, check me out. Social media is all about, look at me, check me out, like what I'm doing, that we're not listening to other people a lot of the times. And we're, we love, we want to shout our opinion about everything. So is that a skill? Are there ways to develop that skill that can apply to regular people? And I think of it in a couple of different ways. One is just getting me out of my own head sometimes, making me realize it's not all about me. The world is not about me. And that's true for everybody. But then also, when, if you have a friend or a loved one who's having issues and part of what could help them is just listening to what they have to say, especially if they're not all that willing to open up about it because they feel embarrassed or they feel like they're ashamed about it. How do we develop that skill just as regular people? Uh, my humble opinion, I think that one of the keys to, to letting, letting somebody know that you're listening to them is just being aware of your uh, nonverbal uh, right. communication. So you're, all the body language that you're sending to somebody. And that's really what someone's looking at who, who doesn't know you. If they don't know your language, they're going to be listening to you, you know, um, but it's, it's having that, um, that active listening, nonverbal body language that, that you know, you're, you're facing the person, like even your feet are, are forward. You're, like you said, you're looking, you're making eye contact, but you're also letting them know nonverbally that you're really attempting to understand what they're saying. It's like, you're not thinking about what you're going to say next, or you're not talking over someone. You're 
giving like, like a fine wine. Let's give this baby time to breathe. Right. <laughs> and, you know, some of the best speakers that I've seen, like uh, Jordan Peterson comes to mind. Uh, have you ever hear, heard him in any of his interviews? People will ask him a question and he's not quick to answer. He'll take sometimes two or three seconds uh, before he responds. And, and I, I teach this a lot to, to adolescent young patients that I see. You know, when we're younger, we, we think that we have to give a response to everybody. We even want to give some excuses to why we're doing what we're doing. And I, I tell them a lot, hey, you, you don't have to tell anybody why you're doing something. You don't even have to respond if you don't want to. But, but taking that time when someone asks you a question and really thinking about what you're going to say and choosing your, your words the very best that you can, you know, that, that's really good, rich communication. And, and that person's going to appreciate it, you know. What happens when you ask somebody a question and they don't respond to you right away? When they take a moment, what, what do people do? They go like this. They're, they're, you know, you just took all the power back, right? Now you have the power. Uh, and people are waiting for that response. You, you've given them a little something to, it's like, whoa, he's really thinking about this. What's he going to say, right? And that can be very, very powerful. And, um, if we would just take a few moments before we respond and really think about what we want to say. Uh, and, you know, again, what's the point of this conversation? Why are we talking right now? Right. That can make all the difference in the world. It makes a difference between a really bad conversation that you don't want to be in and something that you enjoy uh, interacting and you look forward to the next time you're going to talk to that person. Right. And so it's, it's real simple things. These small little changes can, can make, just incredible, incredible difference um, in, in an everyday conversation with someone. Can you get real specific on what a bad or good nonverbal cue is? Like what's a what's an example of a bad nonverbal cue or a good one? You mentioned like turning your feet, but are there sort of very specific things that we can do that are good or bad nonverbal cues? Yeah, just, you know, the, the good is, is, is giving that person your 100% attention. And, and really even checking yourself, like, am I focused on what this person's saying right now? And what are they trying to say to me? Like, you should be like trying to, okay, where, where, what's this person? And just let it go where it goes, you know? Don't jump in front of the conversation that person's talking, right? And again, you, your, your body language will reflect these thoughts that you're having every time, right? If you want to get away, what is that person doing? They're looking away, looking at their watch, they're facing away from you. They're not squared off with you. They're looking, they're facing somewhere else. You know, it's a, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So that person's yeah. not, they're not interested in what you're saying at all. Right. So, you know, these are, these are small little things that make the huge difference in, in the, the quality of your communication with someone. And it's probably one of the um, really important lessons I had to learn as a, as a practitioner is, how to really, you know, really listen to someone. Um, it's, it's really important to my patients. And I, I really got to focus and practice that in my clinical rotations where we talk to patients that are, that are sometimes come in involuntary against their will, you know, for treatment. Uh, and, you know, they say all kinds of things and they can curse at you and yell at you, but you know, that you got to swap that, that that's part of their communication. They're, they're frustrated, they're angry and they have every right to be. And, that's part of their communication. And we have to listen to that as well. Right. Yeah. So um, it, it, it's difficult to do in the beginning because 
we want to solve problems for people, particularly men. We want to solve problems. We want to fix things right away. Um, and that's one of the things that working in the ER as a psych nurse, I would see the RN nurses, the, the, the ER nurses get very, very frustrated trying to take care of these psychiatric patients because these are not problems that you could solve right away. You can't, you know, find the yep. artery that's bleeding. I, I got it. Stop the bleeding and we're good. Or, right. you know, uh, they're in a bad rhythm or they need this or they need that. It does, it's not so simple like that with, yep. with yep. psychiatric care. These are these are complicated problems that have usually been going on for a long period of time. They're, they're multifaceted and um, it's just not that easy. So the way that you get in there is you, you start to practice your active listening um, and you sometimes you'll let them go. They'll go whew, five, 10 minutes, you know, but you, you, you can discover that, you know, in the middle of all that, they're actually telling you what they need. Yeah. Um, right. And so that, that's the real point. It's like, what are they really saying? For, forget the harsh language and the, the volume, you know, the rapid speed, what are they really saying? Right. And, and that's what active listening is. That's well, like really what it's about. I think this is important too, because I feel like I make this point about so much of our culture these days is about doing and doing more and going harder and getting up earlier and going faster and, and multitasking. And that's the message I think that gets preached at us. And it's this sort of, and it's a very like American way of thinking of hard work and work harder. And that's a good message. But I make the argument that it's not the solution to everything. And I think it gets in the way of this type of thing, which is to some extent we become more isolated because of it, because we're so self-absorbed and it's all about how much more stuff can I get done that the act of being, which I would call listening to some extent, I think that's sort of a, a measure of just being, is like taking away from my ability to do more stuff. Right. I have to like stop what I'm doing for a second and actually focus on another person. And it's not about me for a second. Right. And I think that that's a challenging place for us to be these days. We're just not that good at it. And I think it comes from that mentality. And I find myself subject to this as well. It's like, what, why are you wasting five minutes of my time talking to me? I've got stuff to do. Don't you know how important I am? Right. And so we feel like, listening to someone is cutting into our ability to succeed to some extent, I think. Even if we don't explicitly say that or feel that way, like implicitly, I think we almost feel that way. And to me, it's counterproductive to our collective mental health to some extent. I feel There's so much, and there's a lot of, I, you can probably back me up on this, but there's a lot of research about isolation and how bad that is for our mental health. Um, and so if we're going to become less isolated, we need to start by sort of putting our emphasis on other people some of the time and, and, and get out of our own heads and just listen to other folks. You know, I just think that that's a, that it's weird because it feels like it's, it's counterintuitive, but you'd be, I think you'd be surprised how much, how better you feel in the long term when you kind of focus on other people for a little bit and their well-being. Well, think about how much you can learn when you, when you have a real conversation with someone who is very, very different than you from a different culture or from a different part of the world or has very, very different beliefs than you do. If, if you're able 
to get out of your own way and really listen and have a, a true interaction, that, that can be a very, very incredible experience. Like that's one of my favorite things. Like when I get an Uber, like I always try to get to know that person a little bit if, if they're feeling talkative because. Wow. That's to, impressive, yeah, man. Well, you know, to, to me, um, the, like one of my things that I, I love more than anything else is to come across someone who is completely different than I am, that I, I haven't been to where they're from or grew up. I don't speak their language or, you know, they have very, very different uh, beliefs than, than I do. That's the most interesting thing in the whole world for me. And I, I will uh, go out of my way to have time with those people if they're willing to have real conversations with me. Yeah. Because, you know, when you study another language, you, you know this, that you, you don't just study the language, you study the culture of that language. And there's so many interesting, incredible things we can learn. And we can take what we find interesting, we can add that to our own knowledge. And, and yeah. now we're, we're a different, whole different person. Right. We, yeah. we know more now. We have we've had this incredible experience. It enriches who we are as people. And so to dismiss someone who's different than you because they're not like you, I think, is one of the biggest mistakes you can make as a human being. It's, it's, it's so it's so funny to me, too, because you'll meet people that have never been anywhere in the world and are very quick to judge people from other parts of the world as if their their beliefs are wrong or their way of life is wrong. And, and I'm not saying this is what everybody does, but I, I always go back to like, uh, look, I didn't choose where I'm from, where I was born, my cultural background. A lot, a lot of what I believe or stand for or think is right was essentially taught to me when I was impressionable and young. And, and it's just a matter of or a measure of where I was, happened to be born, where I happened to come from, which I didn't choose. And nobody did. And yet we latch onto these things as if it's the right way and the only way and the most, and it's, I think it's so arrogant. It's such a strange way to think about things. We take so much pride in it and the, the amount of pride we take in things we didn't choose never ceases to amaze me. I just find it so strange. Um, and it's, and you name it across the board. It's, it's, inherent qualities about ourselves or one that I, I think is such a funny one that you see on like television shows like American Idol or The Voice or something is talent. That's another one that I find so someone we get praised for talent, right? Oh, you're so talented. Like why would I why would you praise somebody for that? I mean, I mean, talent's a thing. It's a real thing for sure. Our buddy Jeff, right? He's he's a much more natural musician than I am. He's, he's naturally more gifted at it. So like talent proclivities towards certain things is definitely a thing. But one, I'm, I'm a big fan of hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. And, and I would say someone like that too, like Jeff, the reason he's actually such a phenomenal musician is because he's also worked so hard at it and way harder than me on top of that. But I've seen a lot of people with talent who get beat by somebody who actually really worked hard and loved the process, right? But at the end of the day, getting back to my kind of original point, I just think it's so strange to praise someone for talent. It's like being praised for being tall. It's like, oh, you're so tall. Like, why would you? <laughs> I didn't choose any of this. It's like, well, there's nothing right. to be proud of there. You know, it's a weird mm -hmm. thing. Um, that, anyway, I think we get, I'm getting a little off topic with, with that thing. One of the techniques you talked about was CBT. And I hear that a lot. And I'll be honest, I don't know 
exactly what it is. I, I'm sure I've dipped into it. I've probably been exposed to it. I'm sure as I've talked to various therapists that I've done it to some extent. Can you explain what that is exactly? And like, if you use it in practice, how it works with people, if it's effective, I think that's a term that gets thrown around a lot in mental health circles and people probably aren't a hundred percent familiar with what it is. So I guess, um, cognitive behavioral therapy in, in the simplest terms, this is my opinion, um, is really, um, thinking about your thinking. It's like be, being aware of, of what you're, what you're feeling and what you're thinking and, and shining a light on that. Um, because, you know, as, as humans, you know, we, we have our two emotional brains. I heard you talk about this in your pocket. We have our emotional brain, and our logical brain, right? Mm-hmm. Emotional brains are to keep us alive. And our logical brain is so we can grow and learn and, and d- disseminate what's good and what's bad and what we want to do. Right? Can I stop you there real quick, actually, because I've never used those actual specific terms. Are those, how is that defined in terms of biology, I guess? Is that, are the, when you say that, emotional brain, logical brain, is that physical somehow? Or is that just kind of the way our neurons work in our brains? It's all connected. So you can have an emotional reaction and then that can, that can uh, dispense a, a, a physiological reaction in your body. Right, right. right. So yep. you can get really scared and your blood pressure shoots up. You know, yep. when you go to the doctor's office, they take your blood pressure. It's usually pretty high when you first go into the doctor's office. They call that white coat hypertension. And yes. you're having a reaction. You know what's so funny? I'm nervous in the doctor's office. Right. right? You know what's – okay, so uh, sorry. Let me stop you there. What's so funny? I'd never heard that. And then I went to get a colonoscopy for the first time in my life, which is a blast for anybody who hasn't done it yet. And they took my blood pressure, and it was a little high. It was like 135 over 80. And she's like, it's a little high, but that's probably just white uh, – I think she called it white lab – white coat syndrome or something like that. The white term, white so, coat hypertension. Yeah, yeah. But I think she said white coat syndrome. And she's like, you know, that's just, you're a little bit nervous because you're in the doctor's office. If I, if I left you here for 10 minutes, it would probably be fine. I'm not going to worry about it at all. And I'd never heard that term, but I'm like, man, that's so true because I actually uh, always had super low blood pressure. And then at some point someone had me measure it And because I started thinking about it and worrying about it, it would go up like on these readings. And I would have to very, very specifically focus on relax, like there's nothing to, but it's incredible how much your mind can affect your physiology. And that's a great example of that, of exactly how, I mean, truly you can like screw your body up with your own mind, right? Easily. There's a great book I just finished called uh, The Expectation Effect by David Robson. And he goes into great detail about how your emotional thoughts can have a, either a positive or a negative effect on your biology and what's going yeah. on in your body. And 100%. Uh, a great, great example of this. Here's a quick little story. There's a, a scientist who, uh, stop me if you heard this. He has um, puts these rats, like three or four rats in a bucket, fills the bucket with water, lowers the bucket down into a well, waits uh, 15 minutes, brings the bucket back up, all the rats have drowned, right? So he does it again. He gets different set of rats, puts them in a bucket of water, lowers the bucket down into the well, waits about 10 minutes, brings the bucket back up again, takes the rats out, dries them off, feeds them, pets them, gives them a little affection, puts them back in the bucket with water, lowers it back down into the well. How long do you think they lasted when you lowered them down the second time? 
Oh, I would say longer. I don't know. 20 minutes. Longer. So longer than the rats that didn't have the affection ahead of time. Uh, something like 36 hours. Holy shit. Really? Why do you think that was? Uh... I mean, because they assumed that at some point they were going to be pulled back up and saved, right? That's right. That's exactly yep. right. So this is the expectation effect. They, yes. Because they thought they were going to be rescued, they, they changed what they were doing to survive much, much, much longer. Yep. But the first time, they had no idea what was going to happen, and they drowned fairly quickly. And. Uh, this book goes into many, many great uh, scientific examples where they've tested this to a point where, you know, you can eat unhealthy food, but if you think that food is good for you, you your body is going to digest that food in a different way. And the yeah. opposite is true. If you yeah. eat something that's really healthy, but you don't really like it because you've been eating it every day for a year, your body is going to digest that food in a different way. Yeah. Well, and you have neurons in your stomach. The iceberg. Too, right? Like you... Neurons are not just in your brain. They're in your heart. They're in your stomach. So these thinking cells, whatever you want to call them, exist in other parts of your body, right? So that makes perfect sense if you think about it in that regard. It's like your stomach can kind of think to some extent. I don't know exactly how that works, but we do things where we feel it in the pit of our stomach or we feel it in our heart, right? And that's part of the reason why. There's another great example of... uh a lady who is horribly allergic to roses. And this doctor has this fake rose that looks exactly like a rose. He invites the lady in. She sees the rose automatically. Her eyes get red. She's sneezing. There's snot coming out of her. She's coughing. And he comes up, brings it closer, and she's just like, like this. And he tells her this is not real. And as soon as he tells her that, all of her symptoms dissipate. They all go away. Yep. And so this is a great example of the expectation effect. Yep. So it's all, you know, it's many times it's not the situation that you're in. It's how you feel about that situation. that you're Yeah, in. right. It's funny. Uh, so I just wrote, uh, you mentioned books. Uh, the book I just read was um, The Biology of Belief, Bruce Lipton's book, which has been around <laughs> for a while. And he's, he's a biologist and he talks about the whole book is essentially about this, about how your your beliefs affect your biology, right? Like what you think affects your biology. And then I, I actually, the article I just wrote for this month was all about belief. And it's this concept. There's people I know who have been chronically ill. And I mentioned this in the article and they'll go do all these treatments. I mean, people with like hardcore chronic illness stuff, Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome. And, and I'm a big proponent of those are, there's a huge mental component to that stuff. I feel, but they will get like 90% better. And it's like, why am I still not quite there? And it's ultimately because they haven't shifted their mindset to being a healthy person instead of a sick person. They still identify as a sick person, even sort of uh, like tacitly. It's not uh, overt. It's like they just have grown over time to sort of in their bones feel like I'm a chronically sick person. And you have to, you have to overwrite that circuit circuitry and like walk around believing you're healthy. And that goes along with everything you just said. And I found this in my own case as well. I mean, it's, it's like 
there's it's such a powerful thing right like like that tapping into that uh that belief about yourself whatever you may have uh is such a critical piece and one other component to it is so the story about the rose there i think is a really cool insight as well because you can apply the same thinking to your own conditions so let's say it's anxiety and i'm prone to panic attacks the way i react to that panic attack will will dictate how it's going to go for me in the future right so it's like or the way i react to my own anxious thoughts or depressed thoughts is going to dictate how it goes in the future and i the way i refer to that is the, the relationship i have with it so in the example you gave that woman with the rose she had a her relationship was essentially a relationship of fear to this rose, right? Regardless of whether it was real or not, I have a fearful relationship with this and that is going to physically affect the way I react to it. Most of the time though, we don't take the same approach with some of these mental conditions. So it's like, I, I identify with my anxiety, but I don't separate and realize I can change my relationship to it. And that over time can actually dissipate the anxiety, right? That's what I found with myself was I had to change my relationship with my own thoughts to some extent, right? And that was such a key component um, to kind of my own recovery from this stuff was just getting the place where it was like my, my rose was anxiety, right? And I had to change the relationship where it was like, I wasn't afraid of my own anxiety. I had to, I had to take a different approach. Well, you can, you can reframe that anxiety. You can reframe it and say, okay, I feel my heart beating. I'm breathing a little bit faster. Um, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm feeling this anxiety. You can say, you know what? Something's happening to me in my environment. And my body is preparing me to respond to any situation that comes up. My heart's beating faster. I'm ready. So you could take that weakness and make it a strength. And we do that a lot with, with you know, these, these issues. We, we try to introduce a reframing. How you, again, how yes. you feel about a situation is not the situation. It's only how you feel about it. That's right. And you find yep. out that, that your, your thoughts and your feelings are usually not very accurate. Yep. Uh, when, you, when you're thinking and getting really anxious about a situation. Yeah, uh, reframing is a, is a fantastic tool we can use. It really helps people to just take the take the punch out of that anxiety. And you know, panic attacks. A lot of people will not know when they're going to happen. They may not have an origin, uh, and they spend most of their time being very, very afraid when their next panic attack is going to hit. Yep. So yep. that that's a real issue. That's right. right? That's right. So I, it's interesting. <laughs> Again, I don't know some of the clinical uh, terminology here. But what you call reframing, that's the way I've always thought of it was, again, sort of the relationship. I'm going to change the relationship. Here's, I'm going to understand the relationship I have with this current situation that I've got going on, and I need to change that relationship, right? Um, so that's funny. one of the principles of CBT. Okay, yeah. It's, and so when it's, you- It's changing how you feel about it and being able to look at your emotions in a different way. Right. Being more so, aware of so when you when you talk to somebody about that, what are the tools that you give them to do something like that? Well, I try to find out where that anxiety is coming from. Um, and if it's like if they're having panic attacks, then we just focus on how they're feeling or their fear about having a panic attack. Yep. We, we start there, right? 
And yep. so, yeah, we work to reframe. We, we talk about things that they could do, make a slow return if there's something that's making them afraid. And, you know, I remember I was telling this to a patient this morning. Um, some patients say, well, I'm just so scared I'm going to freak out, right? I'm going to lose it. I'm going to lose it, right? And I remember on, the, on my lock units I worked at, patients would tell me that all the time. And I would say to them, okay, well, what does that look like? If you, if you lose it, if you freak out, like, what does that mean? Right. Uh, and if if you can go to the very end, if you can think about a worst case scenario, this is the very worst it's going to be. This is the absolute worst. And you can just be there just for a moment. Um, if that happens, then you're, you're not you're not you're not having this shock. Right. This trauma. You know yep. what, what trauma really is, is something is happening to you or you're doing something to someone else that you cannot believe is happening. Because you've, you've never gone there in your own mind, right? And so that, that is part of the trauma. It's like, I cannot believe this is happening to me right now. So if you already go there, if in worst case, what's the very worst case that can happen here? Let's talk about that. It's okay if you get a little anxious when we talk about this. If that does happen, you're not, you're not going to lose it, right? Because you already thought about that. And that, that's a big, big part of it is like, that preparation. And that goes to CBT. And the grandfather of CBT, what started it all, is, is the Stoicism philosophy. Uh, the, the person that wrote about CBT for the first time is a, is a researcher called, his name is Beck. And he fully credits all of the Stoic philosophers, uh, you know, Seneca, Epictetus, and yep. all the way back to the, to the you know, the, the uh, Socrates, like the, the main the main guy that started it all, right? That's all coming from those guys. They they really were the ones that set it up. Were those um, guys ever? Let me ask you a question about that. Um, and I've, I want to make sure I, I want to circle back on the panic attack stuff too, because I want to give a personal example on that one. But on the Stoic philosophy, were those guys? Is there evidence that they were actually trying to treat? I guess what we would consider mental health conditions at the time, or was it, was it just philosophy or was, were the, is it, is it a situation where people were walking around ancient Athens having panic attacks and they were trying to address that situation? Do we know that? Well, they, they were seeing uh, a lot of people that were living these lives and they were, they were supposed to be these incredible lives. They were very, very wealthy. They were living these, these hedonistic lifestyles. And, but they saw that they weren't really enjoying life. They weren't really happy. Yeah. And uh, there's a great book, um, uh, Breakfast with Seneca. Here it is. I, I, I read a little bit of this usually every single day. And this book is about Seneca is writing letters to his friend who's having all these kinds of troubles. And he's he's giving them these tips that can really help him. And that's a uh, big, big part of where a lot of our, our notes and letters from Seneca comes from, is he's just writing his friend. And saying, hey, if you try this, it might be helpful. Yeah. And he talks about anxiety and death and dying and suicide and all of these things. And a um, fantastic book. One of the things he focuses on is uh, anger and rage is very, very equivocal to being completely insane. Because mm. you, you have lost control of yourself, right? Uh, I think it's uh, Marcus Aurelius who says, whoever makes you angry, makes you lose your control of yourself, that's your master. Yeah, right. You no longer control yourself. That person is controlling you now. So it, it's it's equiv equivalent to being being completely insane. 
Yeah. When you have that that rageful anger, right? Yeah. And you know, people that look at other people and judge them and say, "Oh, they're this or that." A lot of times, that finger you need to. If there's something going on with you that you have a problem with that maybe you identify in yourself that you don't like in another person, and maybe the other person is really putting it out there and it's making you very uncomfortable. So yeah. it's best to ask yourself, yourself, what what's going on with me that that person's doing that makes me feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, sorry, I went off on a little. A no, little no, no, tangent no. Here. I asked that question uh, before we move on. Uh, just on the panic attack thing. So I've I've had panic attacks in my life, and um, sort of years ago. But then I started having them again when I was doing some treatment uh, for Lyme disease and some other things. And I and there's. This is where, where the science gets a little kind of iffy and there's people who say this is quackery, but there's this kind of theory about when you're killing certain types of bacteria, spirochetes, whatever, that the it'll kind of like shoot out all its toxins as it's being killed and that can cause kind of psychiatric reactions, panic attacks being one of them. And I, I will say I completely experienced this where I would have, I had, I was sitting in an airport and I was about to get on the plane and I had a panic attack out of nowhere, like apropos of nothing. There was no proximate cause. I wasn't thinking I'm not afraid of flying or anything like that, but it was like walls came closing in this sense of just complete dread and doom came over me. And I'm, I'm literally about to get on this plane, but Luckily, I had some of these tools in my tool bag where one, I, I had done some stuff with a, an app called Curable, which does a lot of, I don't know if you know that app, but it, it kind of talks about this among other things. But the idea, there's, there's a specific sort of panic attack buster on there. And the guy does this exercise where you essentially like challenge the panic attack to do its worst to you. Like, do your worst. What are you going to do to me? Are, are you going to kill me? And the answer is no, like a panic attack is not going to kill you. Um, it's, and the worst it can do is just make you more anxious and afraid. So if you can literally try in that moment to just recognize this will eventually go away, it's not going to last forever. And I'm, I'm not going to give into it. And I think of it in terms of like a bully, like to me, anxiety and panic attacks, it's, it's like a bully on a playground. It likes to beat you up. And as long as you keep being afraid of it, like you're talking about, I'm afraid of having a panic attack, I'm thinking of it, or even in the moment, I'm sort of resisting and I'm like, ah, and, and kicking and screaming, the more it's going to keep coming back. And the more you can just kind of go, whatever, do your worst, like over time, it'll eventually, you will retrain your brain to just not do that anymore because you've changed your reaction to it. And I had a conversation with, with somebody about this over just kind of cocktails one night uh, who was prone to panic attacks. I was like, just take this approach of so what? Like when, when that happens to you, write it on a yellow sticky, put it somewhere where you see it a lot of just like, so what? I'm having a panic attack. Like, so what? It's not going to, it's not going to harm me physically. Can't really not long-term. Like my heart gets, gets racing. You're going to feel these things. But the more you can just have that attitude of like, hmm, just shrug it off. It might not be immediately. You might have another one down the road. But over time, you can dissipate that response and, and get rid of it. I, I truly believe that. I don't know if you have any data to back that up, but that's the way I feel about it. 
uh, it, well, it's true. Whatever, whatever you think you can do, you can do, right? I think that's a, that's a Henry Ford quote. If yeah. you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, then you can't, right? right. So wherever right. you steer your mind, your body is going to get on board with that, consciously and unconscious, right? So it, it, you kind of kind of did what we just talked about earlier. It's like, okay, what I'm going to freak out. Okay, what does that look like, right? You know, you're, you're so worried. I'm going to freak out. Who's going to see me? And I'm going to be crying and it's going to be awful. Okay. Right. Was that, you know, it's like, you're not going to die, right? You're going to be embarrassed, but those people don't even know who you are, know nothing about you. Right. So how bad is it really? Like how, how bad is it really, if, you know, and let's macro view this, right? It's a great yeah. thing to do also is to look at yourself outside of yourself in a yeah. situation. It's like, how do I, if, if you could double yourself and then look over and see how Chris was reacting, you'd be like, okay, what does that look like? What's going on here? And you instantly have different a different feeling about it, right? Yeah. Uh, I, there's a macro view and a micro view, and I love, I love that's been very, very helpful f- to, to me personally in a lot of my situations that I think are, you know, I get caught up in my own, my own stuff, and it's like this is so, so important, and I'm so focused on this, and then you know, you, you have all these these feelings that you you think you're going to feel when you get to a certain point, then you get there, and you don't, the things that you thought were super important aren't important at all, right? Like probably what you went through with, with buds and all that and being a seal, like you were probably thinking like the top gun stuff and, you know, the rock star. And then, and then you, I'm going to do all these crazy things. And you did do those things, but they probably weren't what you thought they were. You probably weren't having the feelings that you thought that you were going to feel when you were thinking about that years or months earlier. Right. Well, like very, I would say, very different. I think our expectations of things are almost always not what they actually end up being in real life. And we really would take heed to realize that about kind of the things we fret over and worry about. The amount of stuff that we worry about, I know that I have worried about in my life that never came to pass, that didn't happen. It's an unconscionable amount of stuff. And that's such a hard lesson to learn. And it's been a hard one for me to learn because you do it over and over and over until you finally realize, like, I, there's no point in doing this. Maybe something, maybe the worst will happen, but probably not. And there's no point spending any energy on that right now. And not, and I don't know what the percentage is. 99% of the time, the worst doesn't happen and not even close to the worst happens. And, um, yeah, it's just such a valuable lesson. Like we said, especially I spent a lot of time on anxiety because that's been my classical issue. Um, and I want to go into some other stuff as well, because obviously that's not the only condition people have out there. And I'm sure you you deal with people that have other, whether it's depression or OCD or PTSD or whatever it may be. Um, so I'd love to dive into that. But yeah, I mean, like just to kind of close out that thing is I have to check myself constantly of stop envisioning the worst thing. That's a, like catastrophizing things is such a easy place for me to go that uh, I've had to work very hard at not doing. And like, like you said, you know, it's okay to think about that just for a moment with worst case scenario, but often rarely does that ever, ever happen. Right? Like there's a 1% chance that's actually going to go all the way to that worst case scenario. But even if it does, it's not something that's going to knock you knock you down because you've already done that work. You've already done that 
taking yourself there and, you know, engaging your logical mind, particularly when you're anxious or when you're depressed, these are extra steps. This is work. It's not easy to do that. You have to, you have to focus and really do that. And you have to shut out all of the external stuff that's coming in. Um, I, I ask a lot of my patients, I ask them what their routine is. Like, tell me, you know, take me through your day. And a lot of people, they, they get up and as soon as they get up, they're on their phone or on their computer or they're, they're dashing off to work and they're kind of like behind the ball and things are coming at them. They're just the whole day. And I, I asked them, you know, what, what if you got up and just took a little bit of time, as soon as you're up, you're, you're out the door, you're outside, you're letting that sun hit you and you just stop all that external stuff from coming in, even if it's for 30 minutes. And you think about what you were dreaming about last night, what your real thoughts are coming from, from inside. And it's a, it's just a great way to settle yourself in the morning. And totally. you're, you're exercising self-love and self-compassion. And you're telling yourself, you know what? I'm the most important thing. I'm going to treat me right. Then you're well-equipped to take on the day and to give everybody else what they need because you've already taken care of yourself first. And yeah. I, I highly recommend that. It's It's been it's changed my life. Uh, having a dog has really helped me to get up and my dog's right there. And we're, we're up and out the first thing in the morning and get my coffee. And I, I sometimes, a lot of times I'll journal in the morning, you know, about my, get my thoughts on paper. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's been very, very helpful to, to put yourself first. And then you're, you're not feeling like everybody's coming at you and you're constantly behind the ball and you're on your heels and you're trying to catch up. It kind of like settles you just to start your day proper. Right. Yeah. It's i uh, I'm a huge proponent of that, of sort of a mindful morning routine, whatever that may look like. And I've got my own routine, but I've, I've put out a lot of suggestions about that. In fact, I've got a whole article called, I think my time of morning, I think is the name of the article I put on my Substack. It's all about that. And it made a huge difference for me because I used to be somebody who got up, sprinted out the door to the gym. And that was the first thing I did, which is fine. There's, I mean, exercise is great, but it's sort of, for me, it was a nervous system activation thing where it was like, I was, I was feeding the, I think I was feeding the hypervigilance, like gotta go. Oh my, you know, ramp up the nervous system. And now even on the mornings where I'd go to the gym first thing, I make a point to get up earlier. And even though I was just asleep, keep everything very slow very introverted, very mindful, very intentional, and just setting myself up for the day. And it's funny, I even, there's another point you kind of made in there that I would touch on, which is I used to spend a lot of my time, and I know so many people are prone to this, thinking, thinking about all, everything they have to do during the day, right? Here's all the stuff I've got to do today. Oh my God, I've got so much to do. And I started really questioning that do I, do I have that much to do today that I have to do today? And if some of these things don't get done, what's going to happen? Has it ever gone super sideways on me? No, not really. And it's, again, it's sort of that forward thinking thing. I've really tried to make an effort to just be focused on, okay, here's the thing I'm working on right now. I'm not thinking about other stuff I've got to do it during the day. That stuff will come eventually here's kind of the most important thing. I'm going to put full energy into this. And that's really made a difference to me too. And it, and again, this is a struggle that I've got. Struggle. This is a challenge that I have to work on every day because I'm, I can easily go to that. 
yeah, but next I got to do this thing. And then after that, I got to do this thing and not helpful whatsoever. It's just this mindset of like the day will come and go. I will get, I will do my best to get things done. If I don't get to some things, what's going to happen? Big deal. (laughs) Right. You you, you rob yourself of the quality. You rob yourself of that moment when you're thinking about all the other things you got to do. And, um, you know, I, I'm one of those people. I think that multitasking is is complete and utter bullshit. I think that's <laughs> so do I. Not yeah. real, not true. And you know, if if you if you're doing anything, it's worth doing. You're going to need to focus on what you're doing, right? One thing at a time, and yep. give people and 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 important things their their due diligence, right? Yeah. Um, I think that's uh, multitasking is like somebody invented that. Some office manager or some hospital administrator. I I just think it's it robs you of the quality of, of, of the moment. Right. And the only place I think it works is subconscious versus conscious action. So I can multitask in the sense that I can drive a car and I can listen to a podcast at the same time or talk on the phone because the driving is something that it's a skill that I've offloaded to my subconscious. I don't have to think about it and that's fine, but we can't consciously do two things at once. Like our conscious mind really can't focus on, two things at once, at least not yet. I don't know if we'll get to that point at some point with putting technology in our brains or something like that, but we really can't. We, Which is why we have a subconscious to some extent. It's like, I, I can learn something that I can offload, download, whatever you want to call it, to my subconscious so that I can do other stuff. And our brain likes to do that. Um, in fact, that's one of the the downside to that is things like anxiety, patterns of behavior can become subconscious and then they become sort of innate for us. It feels like an inherent part of us. And that's why it's hard to overcome them because our our patterns, our neural, neural patterns just start firing automatically that way because we've taught ourselves like, that's the way I am. That's what I do. And, and, it, and brain goes, got it. That's what, that's the way you like to act all the time. Download sub subconscious now we can focus on we're a nervous person we're an anxious person and and now we can focus on other things and that's why it can be such a challenge to bounce out of that right one one trick you can try this worked for me and uh I, I would get so nervous in grad school when i have to i'd write these huge papers and and i would wait until it was time for me to work on the paper and view it for the first time one thing i started doing that really really helped me and i, I tell everybody about this if you've got something that you need to work on or that's coming up and makes you anxious, just take a look at it. Just just read through it, look over it, and give that to your unconscious mind. And your mind will work on that. Our, our brains are, they love problem-solving machines, right? All the time. You, you introduce that concept or that problem or that paper, just read through it once or twice, real quick, five minutes, and give yourself a couple of days or a week, and don't, don't come back to it. But you're you don't even realize it, but your brain is working on that. It's thinking about that. And then you'll find when you come back to that to actually do it, you won't hit that wall. You won't have that same anxiety and that pressure because your brain's not completely unfamiliar. You've already seen it. Yeah. And that was that was a huge uh, step forward for me uh, in grad school with my papers and doing my clinical work, uh, just looking at those things. You know, going through the charts an hour early, getting there an hour early, looking through the charts of the patients I was going to see, helped me prepare so much more. Looking at those papers a week out, and letting letting my unconscious mind just kind of work on that. And, and then you're saying when I came just back to it. 
you're saying just give it kind of a familiarity, right? Like, so it's, it's exactly. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That's a, I want, it's a really I, great hack that worked for me a lot. That's, that's really interesting because I, I believe we, our brains essentially learn while we're sleeping. I know this is true with skills like learning an instrument. We sit there and practice and practice and practice, but when this sort of synapses or neurons or whatever actually connect to make it so you have learned it is when you're not doing the activity. Isn't that right? Yes. You can, you can try to play something really difficult on guitar. You could put it down for a half hour or an hour. You could come back to it and you, you might likely find that it's not as hard as it was the first time you tried to play that, yeah. right? Because your brain has been working on that the whole time. You, and you especially, introduce something. Especially when we sleep, I think, right? Like when we when we sleep, mm -hmm. I, I think that's where the maximum growth in that capacity happens. Isn't that right? Yeah, when you sleep, your, your brain kind of gets washed. So all, all the proteins and stuff that get stuck in there all getting washed out. Your digestion is happening, you know, the, all the repairs going on. And this is why I, th I think it's so important in the morning just to take that, take that time, you know, process what you, what, what you've been through the night before, you know, uh, internally, you know, try to get in touch with yourself and that can, that can set you on the right path for you, for your, for your day. Yeah. So let's, um, I talk a lot about anxiety again, because it touches me personally, but let's talk about some of these other conditions and, and tools, that people can utilize on their own to help them. Because ultimately that's really what I'm trying to do. I try to empower people with actionable steps and tools that they can take in their own lives to enrich their own minds and develop their own minds, right? And, and if that's overcoming certain conditions, that's great. But then obviously moving beyond that too, I think to just like, how, how far can we go with this, right? How, how elite can we get our mental fitness, so to speak? Um, so just go into, let's maybe talk about depression a little bit, like for people that have that as an issue or a struggle, um, what do you, what do you, how do you help those folks? Right? Like what tools do you give them to work with? Well, I think, first of all, I think depression affects every single aspect of a person's life. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, you know, when you're thinking you're depressed that, you know, that, you, when you're focused on it, that can make things even worse. And it's just very, very difficult to come out of that. And I think what helps a lot of people is having positive interactions with other people mm -hmm. who are not depressed. They, they, can, they can get a lift. Uh, and just coming in and talking about things, you know, talking through things that are, that are bothering you, that are causing the depression, if we can uh, adjust how the person feels about again, it's it's often how they feel about a situation, and not really the situation itself. And when they start start thinking on those new lines, then they start we start to elucidate things that they could do to change, right? And I ask questions to get the patients there themselves. We're, we're never going to tell somebody what to do and then they go do it and they're better. That that never works. It never has worked. Um, but asking those questions and having the, having the patient tell me what they think they can do and then to see them light up I'm like, whoa, you know, getting them to say these things. Uh, it's, it doesn't come from me. It comes from, from them. Uh, th that's a big, big step in moving out of depression. And um, 
And I think, you know, medications can help, but if we're talking about a return on investment, about what you can do, uh, medications are way down on that list. Uh, we, I, I go, I call it the pillars of health, right? It's, it's, you, you know this by, by heart, it's sleep, it's exercise, it's being in relationships where you're receiving and giving love, it's safe, where you're not being you know, hurt, when, when, you, when you have you know, shelter and food, all these things, and, and you're treating yourself in a way that, that exemplifies self-love, self-compassion. So I, I always start right there. It's like, yep. it's like, oh, I want meds, I want meds. Like, we'll, we'll get to meds if we need meds. But let's address all these other things first. Oh, wow. So you know? are there, there are people that come in and they're just like, I want drugs? Wow. That's amazing yeah. to me because I'm so the opposite. I went to a shrink. <laughs> Sorry, is that a derogatory term? I don't know if it is. These. Uh, I went to, I guess. And by the way, what's the difference between a psychiatrist and psychologist? A psychiatrist can prescribe medications. Uh, a psychologist will work with you. Okay. through uh, a particularly uh, amount of psychotherapies okay. to help you talk through and work through something. Yeah. Okay. So I went to a psychiatrist a couple of years ago and it was really my, f- I had been to one once, but it was, uh, I was recommended by my local primary care guy because I was having these chronic illness problems. He was like, maybe you should go see a psychiatrist. Okay. Like, let's do that. I sort of did it once, but I hadn't really given it a go. And within 30 minutes, the guy was like, well, we should get you on some meds. And to me, it, it just shut me off. I was like, really? That's the direction we're going to go? The first thing is put chemically treat this thing? I just, and that was, I think I went one more time and I was like, I'm not doing this again with, <laughs> with this person. It was, I was, I was so turned off by it. So it's interesting to me to hear people is that because you think they want a quick fix or is it because they truly believe that it's a chemical imbalance in their brain? And then I guess my following question to be to that would be, this is one of these things where I never know it's a chicken and the egg problem. Is depression a result of chemical imbalances that should be treated that way? Or is it the, you know, is it more, like your mind creates it in the first place and therefore you can get out of it with your own mind. I'm more in favor of the latter. I always believe like, I just don't like this idea of I'm powerless. And I, I think too often we concede to that and we're teaching people to concede to it. Like you're powerless against your own thoughts or you're powerless against your own mind. You're powerless against your own depression or anxiety. And I just feel like it's such the wrong message. Going back to the belief thing, like don't believe that. Like believe that you have power over these things. Don't, I had a friend of mine who was helping me through these things, who is kind of like you, he's become somebody who's a, a therapist or he helps other guys, uh, other veterans. And he once said to me when I was still in the throes of all these anxiety problems, he was like, stop giving away your power. And I said, what do you, I don't understand. What do you mean by that? He's like, you have given so much power to your anxiety that it's it's like you were saying before with Marcus Aurelius. It's your master at this point. You are a slave to this this uh, Leviathan that you've created, and you you just you're not cluing into the fact that you have the power if you want to, you know. Um, and I, I man, it was one of these profound moments where I was like, oh, he's right. 
he's, <laughs> he's, he's totally like educating me here in this moment. And I just, the drugs thing I think is so interesting because to me, it's a, I'm not saying it's bad. And obviously like there, there are times and places where I think it's valid, but to me, it's such a, it can be such a defeatist thing and such a disempowering thing to surrender to like, I need this to fix this. Right. Um, and I, I just, it's one of those things that, I guess, concerns me a lot. So, so the patients that see psychiatrists, they, they often are at a point where medications will be very, very helpful. Okay. And they might have tried to see a therapist. They might have tried to help themselves. They might have tried to self soothe through, you know, substances. And um, they are a lot of times going to a person who they believe can help them. Yeah. Right? And yep. when they take that medication, and they tell themselves, this medication is good. It's going to help me. It does help them. Right. right? Because they believe it's going to. Uh, <laughs> right. And if you look That's at most the placebo of the, effect. Well, it's, it's more than the placebo effect. It's, it's even more powerful than that. Um, and if you, if you look at these medications, if you look them up uh, and, and to see what their mechanism of action is, mm -hmm. many of them will say unknown. Yes. Right. So, so I tell this to patients you know, we use drugs because they work. People abuse drugs because they work, right? <laughs> we, we, we do things yes. that work, right? Yeah. If, yeah. if, if uh, SSRIs, if they didn't work, we would get rid of them. We wouldn't be using them anymore. Right. Although, it, they help I mean, even, even more so than in the past, I think now they, they've kind of come out and said, yeah, but it's not really about serotonin, right? Isn't that kind of the most recent information on this yeah. is yeah it's it's there's it's not one thing it's it's yeah. way more complicated than that you know it's 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 your your genetics and and it's your environment and uh it's you believing the medications are going to work and you know they 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 likely do correct uh uh some some things that are going on in your brain but that's a small small part of it yeah and it's it's not ever one thing that you're going to do that's going to help you. It's going to be 10 things that you do that you have worked out that are specific and authentic to you that you've decided helps you. Yep. That at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's really you that rescue you. It's you that helps you. I'm, yes. I don't tell people what to do. I don't, you know, I don't preach at anybody. I ask a lot of questions. I do a lot of active listening and I hopefully can get the patient there on their own yep. where they're like, Whoa, I need, if I did this, I would feel better. If I did this, I'd, and I'm like, wow, yeah, that's, that's correct. That's right. 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 So let's, let's try those things. Right. Because your job right? at the end, I, I mean, this is one of these things that where I really compare or um, liken physical fitness with mind fitness. And that is to me, you're like a physical trainer, personal trainer for physical fitness. I go to you because mm -hmm. I've never really worked out and I don't really know how to do it. And I need someone to show me, teach me these things. But one, ultimately, I probably after a while don't need to see you anymore. Unless I just sort of like the relationship. I like the fact that I show up or maybe I have trouble with self-discipline. But to some extent, after a while, you're probably not teaching me all that much. And either way, I'm the one who has to do the exercise. You can't exercise for me. A personal trainer can't do push-ups for you or pull-ups for you. So going to a therapist, and I have been to, by the way, since that 
incident, I went to, I did spend some time with a therapist who I, th- I thought was really helpful and taught me a lot. But, but to me, the point is to get you out the door as fast as possible. It's to teach you the things that you don't know or aren't focused on about yourself and your mind. Flip a mirror, you know, put a mirror in front of me. Teach me these, teach me some tools because I'm still, I've got to do the work. I'm the one's got to work on my own mind. The therapist isn't working on it for me. I am. And the quicker it's like I can actually learn what they're telling me and take it into practice, the better off I'm going to be, right? That's it. And I, I put it on the patients. I said, you know, I, I can make these suggestions based on my, my experience and my education, but you're the one that has to implement these changes. You have to do all the heavy lifting. But the, the upside of that is when you start to feel better, who gets the credit? Yeah. The patient does. I, I could, wow, I'm so glad that you're doing better. Oh, thank you. Don't thank me. I, I put it right back. You're the one that, that decided to make these changes. You're the one that's done all the heavy lifting. You've done the actual hard work. Um, and, and, you know, that's it. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, what about when, when you struggle, when there's people that you, I'm sure this happens, people that are challenging that you have trouble getting through to them. They have trouble evolving. What's that look like? And obviously I'm not asking for personal details about people, but like, what is it that holds people back? And are there specific characteristics about certain people that makes them prone to that? Are there similarities between people that just can't seem to break out of whatever their issues are? It, it seems like a lot of times it's a fear of change. And it, hmm. it's amazing what humans can get used to, right? <laughs> yeah, and we, we, that's it well is. said. It's incredible. I, I, I tell that story like the first time I went to the field with the Marines, right? I've never been in the field before. And here I am with all these Marines and I'm, I'm the one corpsman. I'm running around and I'm, I'm up all hours of the night. And, you know, the first week it was just miserable, miserable. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I made a huge mistake. But you know, two weeks later, I'm still out in the field. I'm handy wiping myself to shower down. I've, I'm making jokes. I'm making coffee. And, and it's, it's become a normal day-to-day thing. And I'm, yep. loving, I'm just loving what I'm doing at that point, right? So I think a lot of it is you get very, very comfortable where you're at and very, very fearful of change, which is the silliest thing to say. Like I just laugh because there's no there's – no, a place in the universe where you can look where there's stasis, where, where it's things stay still. Your, your body is changing every single moment of every day outside the, the sun, the universe, right? Everything is changing. We, we are change. And to reject that or think that that's not possible, it's like we, we got to talk about how you feel about change. Right? Yeah. And we have to get you uncomfortable, comfortable being uncomfortable. Yeah. Right. Like, like uh, I, I love the analogy of um, I just heard a uh, podcast. I can't think of his name, but he's an ex seal. And he talks about being in the water and being in the sand and how it buds that get you so uncomfortable. He's like, it's awful. Right. He's like, got sand everywhere. You're freezing cold. He's like, but we have to get used to doing that because that's what makes us the elite. Like we're comfortable. We can get in the water. We can do anything they want us to in the water. We can come in from miles away. And we've done it so many times that we're comfortable. We've become comfortable being uncomfortable, right? 
And that's kind of what I work on with a lot of my patients. Like, let's, let's make these tiny little changes and see if that makes a difference. And if, if something doesn't work, if it's a med or if it's a change, if it doesn't work for you, let's get rid of it. We'll chuck it. What else can we try? Yep. Right? Yep. What, what are you comfortable trying next that, that we've talked about that, that I think might, might benefit you, might help you? Yep. And, and that's it. It's making those small little changes over time that make these tremendous differences in how people yep. feel. Yeah. And I think it's, um, you're really touching on something that's, again, this is the topic of what I just wrote about basically. And that is kind of changing our identity, whatever are these issues that seem to consume us, whether it's anxiety, depression, PTSD, OCD, all the above, they become so ingrained as part of our identity that to your point, it's almost like we're afraid to not be that way. Like we're uncomfortable, as you would say, not being that way. It's like it's there's a comfort in it to some extent. And and by the way, during this conversation, I've sort of said my anxiety problems. I don't identify that way anymore. I don't talk that. I mean, I I talk about it for the sake of the people I'm trying to get to in through this content. But I don't walk around saying I'm somebody who has anxiety issues or chronic illness issues. Like that was a thing that I had to change about myself. Like I could no longer, even if I felt that way still, I had to stop identifying that way and be like, no, that's not the way I am. And really believe it in my bones. And over time, you can change that. But again, it's it's almost like it becomes such a... Um, so patternistic, so like you just don't even realize it that it's that's the way you've become. It's your order, it's your normalcy that you've gotten used to, right? Yes. And to change, to do something foreign is chaos. And chaos is very, very, very scary. But what what happens in chaos? Cre- creation. Mm-hmm. Right? A new, a, a new type of you. So I work like you right now, you know, I have a my routine. I'm sticking to my routine and I, I know what to be expected. I know what's expected of me, but we're going to change that up. Whoa, what? I, I, I don't want to do that. Right. It's I'm a, I'm scared of chaos, you know, and I, I try to have the mentality. Like if something scares me uh, and Peterson talks about this, like if you, if you're afraid of ghosts and you see a ghost, what should you do? Right. You should, you should run at that ghost full full bore as fast as you can run right at it and as soon as you get there that ghost will dissipate it's gone but if you run away from that ghost you'll see it again and again and again and that ghost becomes more powerful and one day that ghost will come and it will kill you yep and and that's a great message it's like we don't have a choice it's not like you can stay where you're at you know uh, i love that phrase we can't stay here i say that a lot we can't stay here We've, we've got to change. We've got to change to grow and to be alive and to experience this life, right? And to interact with people that are different from us. That's how we grow. That's how we live. And that's how we, we derive some satisfaction by learning new things all the time. And that, that's what makes life really exciting because the same routine day in, day out, that gets really, really boring. And, yeah. and then you have depression and then you feel disconnected, uh, you know, because you're doing the same thing over and over again. Maybe you don't talk to people, you know, that you should, the different people, talk to the same people all the time. And that's that's not a good road to go down. You know, that uh, good mental health, that, that does not, that doesn't pan out like that, right? Yeah, yeah. 
It's such a key point, man. And it's, it's one of those things that it sounds easy. It sounds simple, but it's not. It's like, it's so hard. It's it's so really hard. hard. And the other thing is, I was talking to a friend of mine about this today is the difference between this, these conditions and physical ailments is that physical ailments, a lot of time they're short lived, they're acute um, and not chronic physical things. But most of the things we think of when we get sick, they are short lived, they're ephemeral, and we can take a medication that makes us feel better quickly and will ameliorate the entire situation. This type of stuff is not like that. It is not, does not work that way. It's not, you're going to take a pill and feel better tomorrow. It's not, you're going to implement a technique and it's going to work right away. It's a, because you are literally changing the way you are fundamentally, like underneath all of that stuff. And that's a glacial change. Yeah. Yeah. And it's yep. a, sometimes it's a battle of inches. Yes. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. and sometimes it's three steps forward and two steps yep. back. Yes. But <laughs> that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Right. 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 So, you know, I, I won't go into it, but I had the toughest time in school, in grad school. You know, I was never a good student and I had so many setbacks, so many failures, but I knew that that's, this is what I wanted to do. So I just, I just kept pushing forward no matter what. And, and sometimes it wasn't pretty, but it was that forward momentum. It's like, okay, just, just keep going. Don't quit. Just keep going. Right, right. Because really, you know, we decide when something is over. Not, nobody can tell us, okay, you're done. You need to quit. Like you, you have to make that decision before it's really, really over. Right. Um, and so that, that's so helpful to have, for me to have that like forward momentum where I'm just continuing to push forward and right. uh, clumsily and falling down and, you know, but uh yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and I think the, uh, the thing is when we think of our own conditions though, to exactly your point, we can feel like on a certain day you wake up and it's, things have gone backwards. And the, the thing, the thing, the thought that can go through your head is, Oh man, this, this, it's not working. I should just throw in the towel on all this stuff. And you can't do that. It's like, to your point, it's, three steps forward and two steps back. Sometimes it's highs and lows. The point is that the, the arc, the trajectory over time is going to be increasing, you know, but in that it's a sine wave and sometimes it's going to dip down and that doesn't mean the process isn't working. You just have to stick with it. And I, I, as much as I like in everything to physical fitness, same thing. Like sometimes when you're working out day in, day out, it's like you have a day where you're just like, man, I'm just tired. I don't feel great. And I'm super sore and, I don't know why, but I'm just not it. And that doesn't mean I'm not the working out isn't working. It's not that the exercise isn't having an effect. It's just, Hey, that's the way life is. That's that was the perturbations of the situation, right? There's hours more that we could talk about here. So I think we kind of wrap this up for this conversation, but definitely plan to have you back. Cause I think your expertise is so helpful here. And, and I love the conversation. The one last thing I kind of want to bring up is, is anything that's veteran specific. So do you work with veterans at all? Do you have veteran patients? I do. Mm-hmm. So anything specific there that like in terms of tools or, I mean, maybe even in terms of conditions. So PTSD is one that's really quite often brought up when it comes to veterans. Um, I'm just curious thoughts on that in terms of what works for people. Um, 
similarities amongst folks, anything that could be helpful? Uh, there's a great book by Sebastian Younger. I think, um, which, which one? <laughs> All his uh, books are good. It's, it's a, Tribe? Sh- short, quick little Tribe. That's it. Yep. Uh, I, I took that to heart. Uh, and I, I got from that when these guys would come back from, from these engagements overseas, they would immediately separate them and they would go home and they were around all these people who yeah. didn't know what they went through, couldn't relate to them, looked at them in very, very different ways. And so I, uh, when I noticed that that's happening, I, I try to connect veterans with other veterans who have been through similar experiences and then they have that camaraderie back. I, I think they very, very much need that. In his book, he talks about people that were the soldiers that would come back. All they could think about was being back with their with their units over overseas in Afghanistan or Iraq doing their thing, not because they wanted to die or had a death wish, but because they felt that 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 love between brothers, right? And then all of a sudden, we've just put a put a stop on that and. Um, I even thought about what a good idea it would be when these guys come back to keep them together for a little bit before they dissipate and go on to different stations yeah. and to, to, to keep them together and to keep that relationship going, keep that friendship going because it's such a brotherhood, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that that's the, uh, they seem to have a real, real tough time. You know, anybody, when you, when you separate and you can no longer talk to somebody who you feel can relate to you, uh, yeah. It's probably one of the, the biggest biggest takeaways um, that I got from that book, and, and that I address with a lot of the veterans that I that I see. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what the situation is is now. I think I think things have gotten better in terms of sort of what you're talking about, right? Like, to, you don't go straight from combat situations to like being at home. I mean, I will say personally, uh, like, uh, yeah, I, I know the struggle there of like going from that setting straight to like the yin and yang of life, right? And how that kind of plays on your psyche. I think that um, the thing that jumps out at me about that situation that he talks about in Tribe, and I've, I've, read, the, I've read the book a couple of times. Yeah, it's a very, it's a great book, quick read. Great book, um, yeah. But the thing that's, I think people miss when they leave these types of roles is purpose, right? And so like, even if you're in, a really hellacious combat situation where it's like life and death every day, the, what you feel there with other people, and it, it's not just camaraderie, but it's, it's purpose. Like, it's like, we've got a mission and like, and, and I have, I feel like what I'm doing matters. Right. And, and there's, there's a reason I'm, I'm here. And that to me is what people lack a lot of times once they're done with that kind of a job, they, and they feel like, the job gave me purpose and I don't have that anymore and I don't have a purpose. And what I tell people is, well, your values really aligned with the reason you sought that job was because your values aligned with it. And so what you didn't realize was that you already really had your own purpose. It's just that this job aligned with it. And so you need to do that. You need to reexamine your values and define your own purpose. Like meaning isn't something to go find out there. Like it's under a rock or something. It is for you yeah, to define in yourself. Here. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It's something you create. Nope. And that's, I just think is lost on people. Um, one other book, we there's a whole bunch of books we mentioned, but um, have you ever read uh, Lost Connections by Johan Hari? 
That's a <laughs> I have that on my nightstand right now. That's yeah. funny. So Great fantastic book. book. Yeah. Yeah. And he yeah, talks a lot about that it. too, right? So it's like the reason people get anxious and depressed is all these sort of lost connections. It's, it's uh, losing meaning, meaningful work. It's losing connections with other human beings. It's whatever else he goes into. But I thought mm-hmm. that book was so enlightening in, in many Fantastic. Ways. You know, um, a lot of the kids that I talk to, they come to me and they're like, you know, what's the point? What's the point of all this? Every, everybody is fake. This is all for naught. Nothing's going to amount to anything. And then I ask them, what a you know, nihilistic, what, what you, nihilistic way of thinking. My gosh. Yeah. And I, I ask them, you know, what do you want? What is it that you really want? And they're like, you know, and I'm trying to get to what, what is your purpose? What do you think your purpose is? And then they tell me what they want. And then we talk about a straight line to that purpose. And then they're off and running. Then they're interested and they're engaged. Right. So I think a lot of kids today, they just feel so left behind, disengaged, and we, we need to engage them on, on their own level. And, and then, then their eyes light up. And they're like, whoa, okay, I want this. Okay, let's talk about how you get after that, right? Yep. Let's, let's put together some action steps for you. Yeah, so, that's great. Well, let's end yeah. on that. Um, Stefan, awesome seeing you, man. I really enjoyed the conversation. And I, I, again, Me I too. think let's do this again at some point because there's tons of stuff we didn't get into that I feel like we could um, and we should do that. Yeah. Any, any last thoughts out there, anything you want to put out in terms of where people can find you if they want to connect or anything like that? Yeah. I'm uh, licensed in Idaho and Oregon and, uh, you can find me at, um, resilienthealthpsychiatry.com. Okay, great. Thanks, Stefan. Thank you. All right, brother. Mm-hmm.